Hi, good morning again. Um, and this is the tenth time I've done this, and I've never seemed to learn the lesson that I can't be at three places at the same time. Uh, so I'm going to do uh, uh, a job of introducing our uh, guests for our first program, and then I'm going to leave. Don't take that personally, Lee and Tim. Um, and I'm um, uh, going to ask them to sort of uh, self-lead uh, a conversation after they're finished reading um, about the importance of place, which will become clear as they do their reading and then do their introductions. Um, so you guys feel free to, you know, you might find it more comfortable to read from the podium um, and then, um, then have your conversation at the table. Uh, and most importantly is after this program, uh, Lee and uh, Tim will go downstairs to the first floor book selling area where they'll sell copies of their books, uh, Still Points North, and um, that's my phone ringing, sorry. Um, and uh, Habana Libre, which is Tim Wendell's new novella, which I am uh, also uh, honored to announce that Sealit Press published. Or is in the, actually it's, you know, don't run your finger too uh, hard across the cover, the ink might still be wet. Um, it's literally just uh, off the presses, so uh, you'll be hearing more about that book in the, in the near future. So um, um, allow me to introduce Tim Wendell and Lee Newman. Tim's books include The Summer of 68, High Heat, the novel Red Rain, and the novel Castro's Curveball. He is writer-in-residence at Johns Hopkins University. His stories have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, GQ, and Esquire. His newest release, Habana Libre, is a novella set in Cuba and Baltimore. The neat thing about this, it's very much a love story and a story of hope and struggle, uh, 1999 Cuba, but uh, one of the plot devices is it's set against the... Uh, uh, the real-life um, exhibition games that were played between the Baltimore Orioles and the Cuban national team in 1999 it figures prominently in the plot. Um, and it officially publishes May 1st. We thought that the timing for May 1st, uh, uh, May Day, would be appropriate for the publication of that, <laughs> of that particular book. So literally the first public reading from Havana Libre. Um, and I'm pleased to welcome back to Baltimore Lee Newman, who grew up here. Her memoir, uh, Still Points North, is set in Maryland and Alaska. If I understand this correctly, she, she, you went to school in Baltimore, but then in the summers, your parents were divorced, and then in the summertime, you went uh, to Alaska to be with your dad, where he was a pilot and uh, wrestled bears and caught salmon with his teeth and things of that nature. So, um, She is the deputy uh, editor of Oprah.com where she writes about books, life, happiness, survival, and on rare lucky days food. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in One Story, Tin House, The New York Times, Modern Love, and City Sections, Fiction, uh, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, and Oprah.com. So join me in welcoming Tim and Lee. Um, yeah, and we'll have uh, Tim read first, and then Lee read after Tim. And then um, we have uh, uh, board member Cynthia Berman, who's sort of uh, going to be overlooking the room, and, and then they're going to engage in a, a conversation for the rest of the time together about the importance of place. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you all for coming out. It's great to be back at City Lit, and great to be back at the Pratt. Um, let's see, I guess I'm put this here. I'm. It, it's interesting when Greg kind of named the the topic for Lee and I to discuss uh, this morning. I found myself thinking about, um, in essence, uh, the poet Natalie Goldberg, who uh, felt we are too restrictive in our definition of angels, and that angels can be not just celestial beings with wings and things like that, and maybe messengers from on high, but angels can also be place. They can be places where, in essence, we learn something that impacted our life in some direct way that places we'll never forget. And Cuba, for me, is that. Uh, it's like one of those places that uh, reached out and kind of grabbed me, and I haven't quite been able to let go. Um, my first novel uh, was Castro's Curveball, which was set in Havana in 1947. I kind of thought I was done writing about Cuba and Havana, and then this novella came up. And I'm just going to read a little bit, but before I do so, I want to tell, in essence, a story. Um, Hemingway had his old man in the sea. I kind of had my old man in the stadium, which I kind of talk about. Uh, my first trip to Cuba is 1992. I've made three trips. Uh, the last one was with the Orioles in 99 for that exhibition series Greg alluded to. And 
in that first trip in 92, very much um, Cuba was cut off. It still is in a lot of ways from the rest of the world. But uh, so much so that we went to a ball game in Havana, and there wasn't even a press box. And that crew was quite the crew. It was Bill Brubaker from The Post, Dan Lebetard, who's now at ESPN, um, somebody from the New York Times, I've forgotten, uh, Milton Jamile now works for the Tampa Bay Rays, etc. And they didn't have a press box, so they sat us in the stands, which actually was kind of cool. And I ended up sitting at the end of the row, and as I was uh, just sitting down before the game began, an old man, Cuban, kind of came up next to me and he said, I hear you're American. Yes, I am. And he said, tell me about the Minnesota Twins. What the Minnesota Twins? For those of you that go back with baseball, the Twins won the World Championship, won the World Series in 91. And I started kind of my sports talk radio spiel, a little bit in broken English and Spanish, and saying it would be difficult for them to repeat. They're going to lose players. They're a small market team. And he said, I know all that. And thereupon I asked, then what do you need to know? And he said, would you please tell me what they look like? And this guy knew as much about the twins from a number standpoint, stat standpoint, as I did. But he had no idea what they looked like, which is kind of the one that real disconnects with Cuba. It's this land time for God. It's this curtain that's come down between two countries that stand 90, 95 miles apart through, uh, across the Florida Straits. So I started as best I could. I had some help uh, from my compadres, and I started to give him your 1991 Minnesota Twins with Ken Herbeck on first base, Chuck Knobloch on second, Greg Gagne on third, uh, on shortstop, Scott Leas at third, etc. I put Jack Morris on the mound, and the last guy who is difficult to describe in English, let alone trying to translate into the Spanish, is Kirby Puckett. How do you translate somebody who's a bowling ball of a guy that could run like the wind and always seem to be smiling? And as I did this, I was looking out on the field because I was struggling mightily and just trying to conjure up images. And when I was done, I looked back at the old man who was like sitting kind of next to me on the aisle. And he had tears starting to run down his face. And he got up and hit me on the back and said, thank you, now I know. And at that point I said, ooh, this place I don't know a lot about, but I'm pretty intrigued by. The part I'd like to read from, uh, from Havana Libre is set here in Baltimore. It's after the exhibition game between Team Cuba and the Baltimore Orioles. And it's based uh, on a guy named Omar, Omar Linares, who's still one of the best players I've ever seen play. And this is called Omar Silva. And he's sitting in the hotel right down near Inner Harbor. And he's trying to decide if he's going to defect or not, because the door is open. Hours later, back at the hotel, Omar sat on the balcony and looked over Baltimore's harbor. With the crowd gone, the city settled into a tranquil, lovely place. The reflection of the neon lights from the restaurants and tall buildings danced on the dark waters like so many broken promises. Off to the left was Camden Yards, where they had played earlier that evening. Omar had been told that it was one of the most beautiful ballparks in the world, in the major leagues, and he saw now that it was true. The lights above the outfield seats were still on, and he could see the outline of the ancient redstone warehouse that still overlooked the field. He could slip outside right now and reach that place within minutes, and the Orioles would take him in. He knew it. He had proven himself that night, once again playing against them. He could leave, and Pilar, his wife, would someday follow. That's what she truly wanted, wasn't it? That's what she had whispered to him the morning he left for the special training camp at Puna del Rio, how she wanted so much to live in this land, in this country, in this America, how she would find a way to follow him. There was a knock at the door, and Omar opened it to find Jorge Gonzalez, the team's trainer. Jorge's breath smelled of rum, and he was quiet, almost embarrassed to have disturbed the star player. Jorge, Omar said, and held the door open, inviting him in. The trainer barely came up to the player's shoulder. He shuffled into the room, eyes focused on his feet. Omar nodded toward the minibar. Drink? Omar shook his head and held up a half-full bottle of rum. Here, and sit down then, 
Omar said, and they settled into two chairs on the small balcony overlooking the harbor and the ballpark. The night air was humid, almost like back home in Havana, but a hint of breeze somehow reached them, uh, even up here, high above Baltimore. In the silence, they gazed upon the water and the city. At the ballpark, huge banks of lights above the outfield seats went out section by section. Carmelo is gone, Jorge said, and his voice broke, and Omar feared that his friend was about to cry. He slipped away when everyone was celebrating downstairs, Jorge continued. Even Contreras was there, the whole team except you and Carmelo. Omar tried to smile at this, joke about it, but no words came. So when I heard he was gone, Jorge said, and nobody had seen you, you decided to check on me, Omar said. No, it's not like that, Omar. It's just that if you had left, well, I don't know what I would, have, I would do. Omar glanced again at the Camden Yards ballpark in the distance, except, except for the flashing red lights atop the stadium and the white street lamps that had faded in the shadows and dark silhouettes. Still, it remained so close, he felt as if he could reach out in one giant step and simply leap from this balcony and come down magically upon, once again, upon that glorious emerald field. He could do it, and nobody could stop him. Jorge wanted there. Have you ever thought of leaving? Jorge asked. And Omar turned to him, wondering if the trainer could somehow read his mind. I'm sorry, Jorge said. I don't know why I came up here. Nobody ordered me to find you. You might find that a lie, but it's true. I just had to see for myself. Because if you hadn't opened the door, I would have gone back downstairs and gotten a whole bottle to myself. I wouldn't have told a soul. You can trust me, Omar. It's just I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't see you play in person anymore. Now it was Omar who struggled to find the right words. He reached over and clasped Jorge on the shoulder. He pressed hard, feeling the knots of muscle in the shoulder and upper back build up over time. Then Omar got up and walked over to the minibar. He opened the dark wood doors, found a bottle of scotch. He held it in one hand, just staring at it. He knew it would cost him plenty in U.S. dollars. He held it another beat longer in his throwing hand and then proceeded to break the seal. He found two glasses in the bathroom, filled each halfway, one for Jorge, one for himself. Back out on the balcony, they drank and gazed anew at the sleeping city. It had grown so quiet that they could hear the music and the laughter from the hotel bar, many floors below them. Those Orioles had a great third baseman, Jorge said. <laughs> Where? replied Omar. Nobody on their team that we played was that good. No, not now. But years ago, Jorge said, and he took a long sip. Before the game, I went over to the clubhouse. We didn't have enough tape or wraps. We never have enough of anything. But their trainers were kind. They gave me plenty. One of them knew some Spanish, and we got to talking. You know how it is. You should see their clubhouse, Jorge. It's like a palace with car carpet and music speakers and more whirlpools than we have in our entire league back home. Sounds like you should have stayed there. Jorge, Omar replied, maybe capitalism agrees with you. Jorge shook his head, no, no, it's Omar, it's not like that, it's just I'm telling a story, can't you see? All right then, Omar said, sorry it embarrassed his friend, tell me your story. Jorge nodded eagerly to continue. In their clubhouse there are large photos, like movie posters, he said. We stood in front of one of them and I asked who it was. And they told me it was somebody named Brooks Robinson. They told me that Robinson played third base and once was even in our old winter ball league back in Havana. Robinson must be an old man by now, Omar said. Yes, but he was the best third baseman they ever had with the Orioles. The trainer, his name was Mickey, said Robinson won more gold gloves than he could remember, and he could hit the long ball. He could do it with men on base and with the pitcher bearing down hard. He was one of the best third basemen of all time. And then do you know what he told me, Omar? No, Omar replied. He didn't want to hear the rest, but he knew there was nothing he could do now to stop his friend. He said, you're better than Brooks Robinson, Jorge said, the words just tumbling out. Even though Mickey has barely seen you play, he says you're the best third baseman he's ever laid eyes on. They finished their drinks in silence, watching the city settle into a deep slumber. 
After a while, Jorge got up and patted Omar lightly on the back, and then he headed for the door. As dawn bled across the morning sky, Omar packed his things in the old leather suitcase that had been his grandfather's. The story was that his grandfather bought the suitcase from a salesman on a sidewalk in Coral Gables back in the day when a Cuban could take the ferry to Florida any time he wanted. His grandmother had told her husband that he was being foolish, that anything not from a store wouldn't last. But the Florida suitcase was the best bag the Silva family had ever owned. Omar carefully folded his clothes and began to tuck them away. The team bus left for the airport and the return flight to Havana at 7 a.m. sharp. After he folded the last shirt and put it in his grandfather's bag, Omar looked out the window at Camden Yards, home of the Baltimore Orioles. Downstairs, he knew that Rennie Tovar and the other sports agents would be waiting, watching his every move, seeing, looking for a sign, looking to see if he would defect. Yet as Omar closed the hotel door, he told himself to keep his eyes straight ahead once he got downstairs. File on the bus with his teammates and Jorge and the others and try not to look back at that beautiful ballpark ever again. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Um, this is off the subject because I didn't write about it, but I, I have traveled in Cuba. And so it was so great. We could maybe talk about like when you go there and you can't order any seafood other than lobster because no one's allowed to have a boat. Everyone's eating ham. Um, and it's such an honor to be here at the Poe Room. I, I, I feel like my whole life, I used to come down here on Saturdays on the 61 bus to the Enoch Pratt Library, and I would work <laughs> all my school papers and so on when my mom was at her job. Um, as Greg said, um, my book is called Still Points North. I actually, uh, I grew up in Alaska until age seven, and then my mom moved to Baltimore, and at that point, uh, I lived between my two parents, uh, my dad stayed in Alaska, and my mom lived here in Baltimore, and I went every three months. I flew the 5,000 miles between parents, there and back, um, by myself. Um, I was an only child. So um, I'm just going to start reading. I'm going to read a short passage about Alaska, and then a very short passage about Baltimore. In the largest state in the Union, a state built on gold rushes and oil pipelines, 90-pound king salmon and 20-pound king crab, a lot of things come prefaced by the phrase, the Great Alaskan. There's the Great Alaskan Salmon Bake, and the Great Alaskan Lumberjack Show, and the Great Alaskan 9.2 Earthquake. And of course, there's a species of larger-than-life male citizen who shall now be referred to from here on out as the Great Alaskan Dad. Some identifiers. The Great Alaskan Dad flies his plane on floats in summer and on skis in the winter. He hunts for caribou, moose, wild sheep, wild goats, geese, and ducks, plus fishes for halibut, halibut, salmon, and trout. No matter where he goes, his outfit remains the same. Falling down hip boots, patched wool pants, drugstore sunglasses with Polaroid lenses for spotting fish underwater, and a stern life jacket with a red plastic tag that reads pull in the case of emergency, which has never been pulled despite his frequent, always almost fatal emergencies. A buck knife, the blade stained with dried, identified blood and slime, dangles from a lanyard somewhere on his person. The great Alaskan dad can sew on his own buttons, patch his own waders, repack his own shotgun shells, and repair his own outdoor motor, even as, as, as the boat is filling up with water in the middle of the ocean. The great Alaskan dad can land a Piper Cub on a 150-foot-long gravel bar which is technically impossible, according to all aviation authorities. In addition, though I might not bring it up around the campfire, the great Alaskan dad has invented a diaper out of alder leaves in garbage bags when all the pampers that the great Alaskan mom packed happened to fall out of the raft. The great Alaskan dad has piloted a plane while his airsick great, Alask great Alaskan child projectile vomited inside the fur-lined hood of his parka. And he has, not mythically or romantically or hyperbolically in the least, grabbed that same child's belt loop or leg right before that child fell into the raging stream or fell out of the flying plane or slipped off the boat or wandered off the cliff or tumbled down the crevasse of the glacier 
or ate the poisonous blueberries that were not blueberries, or sauntered directly into the path of the black bear with two newborn cubs. Where all this experience might not help him, though, is in the land of toothbrushes and crustless peanut butter sandwiches, recommended daily vitamins and monsters under the bed. In short, the world of domestic survival, which is where my great Alaskan dad and I land the first summer after my parents' divorce. It's June, the first week of salmon fishing season. For the past six months, I've been away from Anchorage, Alaska, where I grew up, in order to relocate with my mother to her hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. The first day I'm back up north, I find out that Dad has moved from our old house by the mountains into a new house across town. The house is big and sunny and filled with lots of wall-to-wall -wall beige carpeting, but no furniture. It's 8 o'clock at night. Time for bed, Dad says. He rolls out two identical down bags, bags designed to keep you warm in temperatures up to 40 below. I hop in mine, zip it up to my chin, and crumple up my jeans for a pillow. The sky through the windows is a blazing sun-heated white. We have no blinds or curtains. Shut your eyes, he mumbles. I shut my eyes, but I'm eight years old. I squirm, I hum, I kick Dad, whispering, I can't sleep, can you sleep? Tell your brain it's nighttime. Your brain will believe anything if you say it over and over. It's nighttime, I say my voice echoing off the blank plaster. But my father's brain is better at believing than mine, it seems. He is asleep already, his mustache twitching in mid-dream. The next morning, at the dock of the back of the house, Dad and I don't discuss what he did the previous spring while I was gone, nor do we discuss the new custody arrangement, which only gives me 11 more weeks this summer in Alaska. Instead, we get the plane loaded and get out of there, away from the house and the city of Anchorage into the bush. Our plane is a four-seater Cessna 185 on floats. Overcook Inlet, Dad keeps us low, swooping over the cold gray expanses to point out surfacing beluga whales. At last, we spot the deep gray channel of Beluga River. Dad brings us down with a hard, slapping landing. There aren't romantic northern pine trees here, no sap-scented breezes. The air reeks of fish and gulls. The water flows by, choked with mud and red, bloated, dying salmon. Walders of, walls of alders line the riverbanks, clouds of mosquitoes hum in the branches. As usual in the summer, the river is red with fish, throbbing with movement in the shallows where the salmon fight for space to lay their eggs. I cast upstream and get my hook caught on a bush. I cast downstream and get my hook caught on the weeds. I snag on a rock in the shallows. I hook my own jeans. Down the river, as always, Dad has a fish on. He fights it through the boulders, wading it up to his chest. I swing my lure in the sun, studying the drops of water glistening off the line. Leafer, Dad says, holding up a salmon, hook in the water. I climb onto the plane float, sitting on a life jacket. Deep, deep in the current, my lure bump, bump, bumps along the bottom. I daydream about a seagull that I train to sit on my shoulder like a parrot. My line jerks. My rod bends a little funny, and bam, my line is sizzling through the river, zigzagging through the shallows. I jump off the float, already running, half letting the fish yank out more line, half pulling it back up to the shore, half, letting, half listening to my dad as he shouts, Watch your drag, pump and reel, watch your tip, reel, that a girl. Fish drunk and screaming, I inch the fish onto the beach, then run for our trusty wooden club. Only now do I see what I've hauled in. The fish is unmistakable, the swollen back, the hooked mouth, the mottled gangrene-colored skin. I've caught a humpy, the lowest species of salmon in the salmon family, a fish mocked statewide for its swamp creature looks and lack of intelligence. Worse, my humpy is soft, lumpish, at the end of its natural lifespan. I look up at Dad, waiting for him to laugh. He rocks on his heels. Now, he says, that's a beauty. But a keeper, he says, throw her in the take-home pile. To prove his point, he steadies the fish for me, holding it firmly against the gravel. Slowly, I raise the club. The fish looks up at me with glittering, green, very alive eyes. Its gills heave. Its fins twitch. I shut my own eyes as I bring down the club, hard, over and over. Bits of blood and skin splashing up onto my cheeks, 
the skull creaking, giving away to mush. Still I don't stop, as if I'm listening for Dad to thunder at me. That's enough. But he doesn't. Above us, seagulls wail, swooping down for scraps. Hour after hour for the rest of the day, we bring in humpy after humpy. Our tempo turns swift, methodical. We bash them on the head, bleed them by the throat, throw them in the waterlogged storage compartments on the floats. The more we catch, the more we have to catch, as if in our minds, the next unnecessary fish will justify the previous. Neither of us talks as the pile grows, the pebbles at our feet turning flecked with blood. If mom were here, we would have made a fire to keep her warm while she read her novel on a log. If mom were here, she would have told us to knock it off. Not because we'd caught enough fish, but because we were all too hot, tired, and hungry, and it was time for a big hot plate for a spaghetti. The moon rises, the mosquitoes swarm. The sun lowers in the white sky. Still we stay and stay, catching and clubbing and bagging, not going home as if we don't ever have to go home until it's too dark and dangerous to stay any later and we have to take off. Great job, my dad says over the headset as we fly to Fire Island. You're a champ fisherman, you know that? I think my last one was eight pounds, I say, maybe. Sure it was, a state record, we'll have to look it up. I smile. It isn't a real lie we're telling each other. It's a fairy tale lie, a fishtail lie. The kind great old Alaskans tell each other about the 500 pound halibut that once leapt into their rowboat and sank it before leaping back out and swimming back off. Besides, I might really be a champ fisherman one day if I practice my casts and keep my rod tip up and live in Alaska for forever, just like dad. Um, and then I'm just gonna read a really quick section about Baltimore because I do love Baltimore so much. <laughs> and I can't come to Baltimore without reading about Baltimore. Um, it's impossible to miss. This is when I come back home to see my mom after that summer, which basically my father and I spent killing things. Um, yeah, it was kind of, I guess, our way of grieving, which has killed everything. <laughs> and then we ate it all. Uh, which involved us buying like three or four deep freezers and some smokers. Uh, okay, so this chapter is called Homeland. It's impossible to miss. Something wonderful happened to my mother while I was in Alaska. Before I left, she did two things, go to work and lie down to rest. Now that I'm back living with her in Baltimore, she buys daisies at the grocery store again. She lemon polishes the furniture. Our first weekend together, she wants to walk through our neighborhood instead of staying in bed with the blinds pulled down. What she says we need is some fresh perspective. I'm looking at the sidewalk, not breaking her back on the lines between the squares of cement. Sidewalks don't exist in Alaska. There are gutters, but nobody walks on them. Everybody drives. In Baltimore, the windows have little green doors hanging on either side of the glass, usually with designs of sailboats cut into the wood. Garages are whole separate, separate miniature houses. I'm still not over the wonder of these architectural details, as Mom calls them, leading us down Goodale Road, studying the ground covers, debating ivy versus pachysandra. She points out French doors and hammocks and the elegance of a flagstone patio. She loves historically accurate touches. She grew up in Baltimore, which, for the record, was founded in 1729 as a port for shipping tobacco and sugar. There is another record, of course. Anchorage was founded in 1915, and only 3,000 people lived there until World War II. The really, really old houses there were built in the 1960s. They are trailers. <laughs> oh, Mom says, a portico. I hang on her. She leads us left towards Spring Lake Way. She smells of a heady mixture of department store creams and shiny, worn purse leather. Her sweater is soft against my cheek. We pick out houses to live in one day. One's bigger and better and more beautiful than ours, a witch's stone cottage, a brick colonial, a rambling mansion with a real Rapunzel tower decorated with panes of rainbow-colored stained glass. I find the Victorians a bit overdone, Mom says, don't you? Let's keep on with the tennis court, I say. <laughs> when a car meets another car in our neighborhood, one of them has to pull over and let the other car pass. As if, the streets were built with for her, as if the streets were built for horses and carriages. When the wind blows, the air glitters gold with sawdust. 
The elm trees are sick, my mother says. The sawdust comes from cut-down stumps. But I don't believe her. There is no visible evidence of it, other than the occasional pink slip from the city, nailed to a still-standing trunk. At the entrance to our neighborhood, there's a wooden sign. Homeland, it says, in black gilt-edged letters on white landmark paint. It looks like the title page to a book of outside fairy tales. Stories filled with bugs that light up like stars in the dark and flowers filled with edible honey and long twisty slides that spit you into pools, outdoor pools, in backyards with water the color of melted blue lollipops. Thanks.
I controlled, had too many subplots, and I was getting kind of crazed. And she um, told me something I'll, I'll now tell my students. I mean, she said, uh, we've got a lot going on in this would-be novel. I remember her saying would-be, because it wasn't quite there yet. And, uh, and she said, why don't you concentrate on the characters that you have the most empathy for, sympathy, yeah. whatever, and just hone in on what they're doing. And in essence, the line I'll never forget, she said, concentrate on them and follow the fun with them. And as soon as she said that, I felt like the way of the world was like mm -hmm. off my shoulder. I'm like, okay, I don't have to worry about the backstory about this guy or what this woman's thinking, whatever. And it really kind of very much concentrated in on the three, four main characters and are they going to affect or not, and uh, if so, how they're going to do it. And all of a sudden, it allowed then what I love about Cuba, the sense of place to kind of yeah. rise to the forefront. Did you feel like you had to go back? Did you go, I did not go back to Alaska. I was all in here, mm -hmm. maybe also just because I had grown up there. I mean, wait a minute. I did go back two summers ago, but I think I'd written already. <laughs> I'd written all the parts I was going to write about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I do go back frequently, but it didn't, I didn't go back to write it. Um, did you feel like you had to go back to Cuba to write all of the, I mean, it's such an incredibly, well, I, I didn't when I was coming down the home stretch for it, and one reason I didn't was a friend of mine, uh, Scott Price, who is a great guy writing about Cuba. He did a book called Pitching Around Fidel, about the Cuban sports machine. And Scott lives down in DC, writes for Sports Illustrated. And Scott and I get together right now, and he said, I'm not going back for the foreseeable future. And it's funny, because both of us are starting to plan some trips now, but that was a couple years ago. And I said, why? And he said, I'm fine, but I feel like the people I talk to are then getting follow-up visits from they authorities get. and stuff like that, and I feel like I'm putting them a little bit more out on the edge than I want to. And I've been lucky, one of the things that Castro's Curveball, the, the novel set in Cuba, that turned on was I ended up taking a class, I was actually at Hopkins, and, and Alan Shoes, Alan, this is the only class Alan ever uh, taught at Hopkins, I believe. Um, he had his PhD in Caribbean literature. And he kept saying, there's a book you have to find. You know, it's a, a, a coffee table book, kind of small black and white photos, roughly from the period that you're writing about. And the third trip to the Library of Congress, I found it. They, missed, they put it on the wrong shelf in the stand reading room. And I Xeroxed the whole thing. And then I did a second copy of Xeroxes. And the next night after class, I said, Alan, you got a minute? Here's your copy of the book, you know, Xerox it. And, and he was great because he was looking at it as a writer. The first thing he did was just look at this and go, here you go. That scene you have on the waterfront, here it is. Okay, now you know the sequence of the buildings and what's here. You know, here you are on the neighborhood near the Tropicana. And frankly, Havana hasn't changed that much, and I still dig that up when I'm kind of going, okay, you know, that street goes where? I can pull up the maps, but I don't want to look at it, not pull up the photos. Um, I think this is kind of a related question because you just touched on the issue of the consequence of, uh, of someone's writing and how it can impact other people, um, whether you're writing about them directly or not. And this has always been my curiosity about memoir. Mm -hmm. How do you balance the honesty that good memoir um, requires um, when you're if you're writing about people with whom you still have a relationship, if you're yeah. writing about your parents, yeah. you're so a child, yeah. how do you do yeah. that? Yeah, I did not write a memoir for my parents who were so terrible they don't speak anymore. Because um, I just don't feel that way. I actually wrote, I wrote my memoir. First of all, I like, I didn't realize I was writing a memoir. There was no point that I, I, I didn't know what I was writing. And I wasn't, I don't really talk about my work. I don't really show my work to anybody. So I was just writing and writing. My parents at a certain point knew that I was writing a book, but we all talked about the book about hunting and fishing. Wasn't the book about hunting and fishing going to be a great book? And I thought that too. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I thought I was doing in my dirty little closet. I went in a closet. Uh, yeah, it's, we don't have any room, so I was like, I'm going to Or I put a desk. It's literally, I had to build a desk because they don't make them all. And so you're in solitary here. I know, Don't come out until those pages. I, 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 I But I but then 
it's certain when I realized that I was writing, I was going to have to reconcile it with myself. That was the first thing. Yeah. Uh, and then at that point, I realized that I was going to write a memoir about about <laughs> loving my family. That it, fundamentally, it was a story about divorce. It was a story about Alaska. It was about survival. It was about how you become so self-reliant. That's really what happens in Alaska when you grow up in Alaskan culture. You know, kids there at age seven can dig their own outhouse, they can shoot a gun, they can fish their own food, and I even became a little bit more self-reliant because I was flying on airplanes, I was changing in Chicago, uh, my mom was at certain times unable to take care of me and I had to take care of things in my house with my mom. But as I wrote the book, I realized the only way to write about it that would make the book good and make me okay with myself was to, to like try and understand my parents and what happened and try and figure out for all of us. Because I knew my parents were wonderful people. But we had, we had all done really flawed things. And, I, and I'm one of the three here <laughs> in that story that had done flawed things. And so as I wrote the book, I began to kind of fall in love with my family. You know, because I had stopped telling these certain stories where I was the hero. And at the end of the book, I felt like I had a fair, I had a really kind of loving testament to what had happened to the extraordinary things that had happened to us. And I actually gave it to my parents before I gave it to my editor. And I gave them the choice of not publishing or publishing a book because I was not willing to publish a book that my parents were so upset about and ashamed of or destroyed by that, that it ruined my relationship with them. So they, it took a while, and it was scary. I'm not going to lie to you. That was scary writing it. It was scary giving it to them. It was scary waiting the three weeks while they, they thought about it <laughs> separately, and I had to do it twice, and I had to give it to my stepmother because she was involved. And I care about her. Uh, I had to give, and then I had to give it to my two half brothers who were born 16 younger, years younger than me, and they didn't know anything. They didn't even know. Uh, they'd never met my mother. They never knew. A lot of crazy things happened. My parents burned down the house one time. They were fucked. I mean, they didn't know any of that. <laughs> so um, it was really rough. But I will say, I never anticipated it. I only thought about sort of telling the story. I don't know what I. I didn't think very far in advance. But having, in retrospect, which is much easier, if you are thinking about it and you can do it in a way where it, where it actually moves your family forward and moves your life forward and moves your craft, your writing life forward, which is what this book did, then I think you should just try and do it as hard as it is. I have a, I have a question about, maybe this is appropriately vague so that you can <laughs> but um, I'm wondering for, for either of you is there a, uh, a moment an event um, in in your work where place uh, shaped or framed uh, characters thinking to such a degree that the actions they took were directly reliant could, could be seen as directly reliant on place. Is there, a, is there a moment in your work where place is kind of the force that makes people do what they do? And I, and I don't, you know, better that it's not like a tornado or something, but. Yeah, I mean, you know. I think my whole book is that. I mean, honestly, it's all about this, this idea of place, both in Alaska and in Baltimore, why people behave they do. But there is a scene where my dad tries to fix things with me as a teenager, and he does it in a way that's only Alaskan and that he shows up at the Tex-Mex restaurant where I'm working and asks me to go on a caribou hunt. <laughs> and it ends up being kind of a disastrous caribou hunt. But it's something that you do in Alaska when you're 13 years old, your dad takes you on a caribou hunt, and you get your first caribou for almost everybody. We lived in the remote parts of Alaska, so a lot of people just drive, but we flew way out, and then we ended up, um, well, having a very tough hunt, and it being very survival-based. <laughs> I think, um you know, you hear a lot of times, and it's a bit cliche, where you try to use place as a character, but to me, that means it becomes like any character in your story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's going to cut both ways. They aren't going to be all good, they aren't going to be all bad, and in doing so, they become a contradiction, and therefore, they become more memorable. Um, for instance, to me, Havana, it took me a while to understand Havana, but one of the cool things about Havana is it's known as the city of columns, which means, especially in the old part of Havana, it's columns separating the sidewalk from the street. And 
and that goes back to when the Spanish settled the place, etc. That's just the way it was built. But for me, that became like a nice linchpin or understanding because nobody is quite sure where everybody stands in a van. Something could be playing out over here, and it could be viewed from over here because it's obstructed or you don't quite see it all and misinterpreted. Everything's misinterpreted. Thank you. And then um, the last nonfiction book I did, one of the uh, summer of 68, which is about kind of sports and culture and how, in essence, sports, I think, helped save us in 68 with the assassinations and the riots. That book didn't really take off for me until I visited Detroit again, and a good friend of mine who knew Detroit much better than I did took me on this tour of Detroit. And I'd been there a little bit as a kid. I remember Detroit as a motor city. My grandfather used to be um, a patent engineer for GM. And that drive that afternoon just broke my heart. And yet it allowed me to kind of see Detroit then and now. I mean, huge swaths of the city are gone. I mean, they're talking about bringing in cattle and growing farm crops because there's so much open area. It's almost like watching a movie where it like clicks off and you get a blank screen and then the movie kicks up again. And that three hours were pivotal in doing that book because I felt like, okay, now I understand Detroit. And I understand, at least in some way, what was lost and what is they're still hanging on to with their, their knuckles, so to speak. And, and it got a real much more appreciation to it. And, and I don't think, you know, it's something that ah, I'm going to write about character's place. But you have to wait for it to kind of sneak up on little cat feet and get you. Yeah, it is, it's interesting because some writers, like, I think both of those look into place. And that, when you're looking at, like, what to keep in a book and what to lose, like, what you want to keep are the things that are, that are that are most what you're trying to say, that are building the story toward what you're trying to say. And I'll see what it just, I mean, my simple rule is where's the writing good? You know, where's the writing really good? Everything else has got to go. And, you can, and nobody will tell you where the writing's bad, but they will surf where they think it's really good. Like, you know, I've never been able to get anybody to tell me where it's bad. Nobody wants to say that. <laughs> but if you get them to circle where it's good, there's usually something in common about all the things that are good. And the thing I always found was an era where, and I used to be, I was a travel writer, but it was always where it was placed, you know, when, when it was always involved in some kind of intricately involved setting versus, let's say, in a kitchen sink with a house with the two people talking about their marriage or something. Mm. Like, that's not where I, you know, can distinguish myself. Mm -hmm. Or haven't, you know. And, and often that's the guts of a story. I mean, I think it was, it was there's a great stories. Yeah. Great writers that write just two people in a room. Yeah. Do you yeah. Know what I mean? But I think you know one thing that can separate a book from, say, a stage play or something like that. I think as Adora Welty said, you know, a setting or place is something that's concrete, identified, yeah. you know, you relate to, and someone's not your action or whatever isn't happening in some abyss or blank slate. No, it's happening in Baltimore, yeah. Van, or Detroit, and those little nuances, again, are the things that kind of give it a push up or the things that kind of tear at the heartstrings. Yeah, that's what I give the characters thing to do, because like, if they're in Baltimore, they're going to pick up something different mm -hmm. and eat it than mm -hmm. somebody in Detroit or somebody in Cuba or somebody in Alaska. I mean, the things they're going to smell, all those like earthy details, all those things that you're doing when you're not talking, that they call furniture moving. Do you know what I mean? But it's just much more natural when you put it in a place. Um, I have a question. You both write about such iconic places, Alaska and Havana. Uh, they've written about, been written about a lot before. When you're describing physically the landscape, how do you keep from falling into cliches? I think you fall into cliche, keep from falling into cliches just the way you do when you're writing English language. I mean, if you are anytime that you see a phrase, right, you know, it was I I'm so trained doing this because we've worked in magazines you've got an editor that puts a slash every time you go like you know, she was as fat as a pig, you know, slash it out. Yeah. I, I think anytime you're writing those things you, you look for those cliches in the same way. I mean I don't know that there are cliches about Alaska or Cuba because you could be writing about the same things, right? You could be writing about all the trees and and rivers, and he could be writing about, you know, colonial architecture and music, but it really breaks down to the sentence level, doesn't it? I think yeah. the sentence is where you distinguish yourself. And I think it also sums down to 
in a sense you're starting with whatever, whatever place, kind of the same basic stuff, but it's what's going to be your twist, right. in a sense, on it. And that twist is often going to be through the character. And, you know, we can name a multitude of places that we've all been to, but I'm kind of going back a little bit to what, you know, we started with the, the Natalie Goldberg thing. Something that's an angel to me in terms of a place may be a demon for you and right. vice versa. It's all just kind of how we look at it, how we were impacted by it, what happened to us there. And I think when you can link those two up, suddenly Havana, even those that are written about a ton, hopefully starts to come alive again. Alaska. And detail. Detail. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, if you just look at Alaska, I, so I don't think that's necessarily a cliche to say salmon in Alaska, but most people, I guess, would just write about regular salmon. Maybe they'd write about king salmon. But when you really know a place, right, right. we talk about jack salmon, chum salmon, dog salmon, salmon guts, salmon eggs. When you can fish with salmon eggs, how do you put your salmon mm -hmm. egg out to a hook? You know, I mean, how you can make a fly that looks like a, When you really have that sense, like, you know, somebody's really good, it's like Cormac McCarthy. If you look at the very strange way he picks up all these little details, even when he's just like starting a fire, he will intricately explain with like two sentences, like how to position the hay, just so blah blah blah. And you realize, oh, that's a guy that's been lighting fires. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's believable to me. You know. I think one quick last question. Last question. Greg is reentering the building. So I'm pausing. <laughs> so, do you have a question? Yes. How has growing up in Alaska affected your writing? Well, I think that growing up in a natural environment, um, I think it does something to your imagination. I really do. I'm sorry. I think it does something to your imagination. The way you think is very visual. I've always known that. You know, I didn't learn to read until I was in second or third grade. Um, so a lot of things I think was I thought and I thought about. You know, you're constantly looking at landscapes and paintings when you're living in nature, and you're constantly picking up those details, like these little rocks. And I thought in a very, very visual way. I, th I think a lot of writers start off as painters. And so it much, very much has influenced everything I do with writing in that the way I look at things is much more of an outside way. And the things I want to happen in that landscape have to be moving forward. Um, I don't write a lot of, I think, while I'm writing, and I try and have a message to what I'm saying. But um, I wouldn't say it's an intensely intellectual, it's not rhetorical. For me, um, and I, I, I think that most children that grow up in the outdoors have such have a very weird artistic sense about them, even if they don't go into the arts. Most of them I've met, um, they end up making crafts, or they're making strange things, or they're making knives in the backyard. I know a lot of knife makers, which is art, which is beautifully artistic, if slightly strange. <laughs> I'm afraid we've run out of time, but uh, both Lee and uh, Tim would be glad to continue conversations downstairs. Will it be signing copies of their books? So join me in thanking Lee Newman and Tim Wendell. We'll stick around for our next program. We'll have poetry with uh, Alpha Michael Weaver and Reggie Harris, both uh, Baltimore uh, poets who have returned home for a reading. So that starts at 12. Thank you.